I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Vertico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detlef. I want to be the first person to say here on any podcast, probably, that I'm on the side of the orcas. I oh, want wow. the orcas to win. I want them to eat all of the boats and um, and maybe even some of the people, too. That'd be fine. <laughs> Hot take, man. I was going to be the first, but I guess you beat me to it. So I'll be the second <laughs> on any podcast to say uh, I also want the orcas to win. I would prefer they don't eat people, but I do think they should eat the boats. And uh, I think also um, we should be doing everything in our power to do some fundraising for these orcas. They're going to need a lot of uh, support. Uh, they're going to need a lot of uh, legal advice as well. Um, so if you're a, a great lawyer out there, or you know one, put them in touch. I'm sure the orcas are looking for them. Now, is there a GoFundMe for the orcas is my question. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, and uh, if there's not, somebody should start it. Yeah. You know, okay, so I said this on Twitter, and I think it's worth saying again because I do love these orcas so very much. Um, so, okay, there are two scientific hypotheses about why these orcas are out here attacking boats. The first one, the first, the first hypothesis is I swear to God, this is not what this podcast is going to be about, but it's going to be very fun <laughs> for just this one moment. Um, so the first hypothesis is that like orcas are social creatures that have like fads within their like within their pods, right? Orcas, you know, <laughs> just <fads>. like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like uh, when you were six years old, everyone was yo-yoing at school or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> orcas do the same thing. Um, so one hypothesis is that attacking boats and like and chomping the rudders of yachts is just like a fad and that these <laughs> these orcas are doing it just to fit in with the cool kid crowd, the cool orca crowd. Um, and uh, the evidence for that in the scientific community is that uh, there's this other study that was done about orcas where for like six months, the orcas would get like a dead salmon and get it on their head and like wear it like a little hat. <laughs> and that's like an example of an orca fad that they just did because it was funny, I guess, or they liked it or, you know, they're just like silly little guys in the ocean, I guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Silly killer so guys. Silly killer guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the other hypothesis is that they do hate boats because uh, boats are bad to them. And I think that's also pretty good. Like attacking the boat is also a fad in that way too, but just like a different kind of one. Mm -hmm. And, I think that both hypotheses are fine and they're not like mutually exclusive. You know, they could be, it could just be a fad, but it could be a fad because like, you know, a boat hit 
one of them or something, which is a, a working hypothesis, I guess, from some scientists. Hmm. All of that to say, I'm a big fan of these orcas, and I would love to stand with them and do whatever I can to, like, you know, help them in their process. <laughs> yeah, Radpod fads, I'm into them. Um, I think uh, it's time. I, we need a, the Orca podcast in particular. Wh- who's, you know, just in the same way that, like, the Cuban Revolution, they had these guerrilla radio stations so that they could really share the news of the revolution to the people tuning in. Like, I want to get that good, good Orca news straight from the source. Um, I'll <laughs> learn that language. I'll listen to these uh, wild songs and beeps and boops. Uh, I got to hear about how the struggle's going. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the underwater podcast. Um, that's great. Okay, we're not gonna talk about orcas much longer. Maybe they'll come up again. You can never be too sure with this podcast. But what we are gonna talk about is um some extremely niche economic knowledge that you need to know about. We've said it before, <laughs> and I'll say it again, we have two types of podcasts. One is about Christianity, and one is where we're bringing you a really important <laughs> ecological or environmental idea and trying to uh, shoehorn it into an understanding of our faith. And that's what we're going to do in this episode. And it's going to be great. <laughs> I'm here for it, Matt. Um, now, I do have to say up front, uh, I told Matt, I confessed to Matt this week, there's no way I'm going to have time to learn anything this week. It's too busy. I've learned too much, and my brain is too full. And Matt said, that's fine. I've got a great thing that I've read. And so Matt is going to drive the car, and I am going to be... Um, hanging outside of my best friend's ride, trying to holler at these economic concepts. And uh, I'm looking forward to being a, a passenger for this one, Matt. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, I think that if if you are an avid listener to, po- to podcasts, this is a pretty common format. People use this, right? One person knows some things and the other person just kind of like vibes and Dean's going to take the vibe role. And it's great. Um, all right. So if you listen to our podcast very much, you have heard us talk about the relationship between economic growth and ecological destruction a lot. It's like become a pretty big theme of the podcast. (laughs) We're always talking about this particular niche. Um, You know the story already, I think, right? The irrational patterns of capitalist consumption and capitalist production is what is currently driving the destruction of the planet, in turn, humanity, and I mean, even the orcas, obviously. Beyond just our podcast, it's pretty much taken for granted that human activity is causing climate change. I think even, you know, a lot of the libs, they know this too, um, and good for them. However, one common belief that you'll hear a lot from liberals and even some leftists, um, the weird ones, uh, is that while like unfettered economic growth has gotten us this far, there are ways to use technology to decouple the economic growth from you know, the way that it presses up against environmental boundaries. You know, the idea is that uh, we can, we'll we'll just kind of like technology our way out of climate change. We will create enough electric vehicles, we'll make a lot of solar panels and all of those things put together uh, will somehow get us out of destroying the planet so that we can't and the orcas can't live here anymore. Uh, Dean, have you heard this before? Is this an idea that you've, you've encountered in the wild? (laughs) <laughs> I've heard it, uh, and I hear it a lot, and I'll tell you specifically where I hear it, um, especially because I heard it not so long ago. The uh, the mining industry in Canada, they love talking about this specifically because they keep being like, that's why mining is so important because you're going to need all our great minerals and uh, whatever else we get out of the ground to do this very thing, to decouple growth from environmental destruction. So one of the most ecologically destructive industries in the world 
has uh, managed to pull this rhetoric in as their way of advertising themselves in the 21st green century in Joe Biden's uh, world regime. Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau, they're teaming up to trick you into believing in something called green growth. Um, So the idea here is that like there's a type of economic growth that is not bad, that is sustainable, that if you buy, you know, (laughs) an electric, electric vehicle, you don't have to use much as much gas and it'll be better for the environment and that should make you feel really good, right? In all of this, there's like this assertion that there's a thing called green growth, uh, a way to grow your GDP, a way to keep producing, a way to keep consuming um, that does not put more pressure on, you know, environmental factors, on planetary boundaries, on uh, on climate change and all this kind of stuff, right? And that particular arrangement, when you're able to peel away growth from like, you know, <laughs> the idea that we live in like a fixed world, um, a, a, a not a not infinite world, a finite world, you might say, is called decoupling. And you see it in all kinds of governmental policies like the Green New Deal um, in the U.S. specifically, but also you'll see it in other climate policies all throughout the EU. It's been like green growth and this idea about decoupling has been the norm for like, I don't know, a very long time. Um, This is just environmental thinking. The idea that you really just have to change what people are consuming and change the way that consumption happens, but fundamentally keeping the the same capitalist pattern um, in in order, right? That's the whole idea. So while this type of thinking is like pretty seductive because it fundamentally means nothing has to change except you buy a different kind of car, it's entirely unfounded and without empirical evidence. There you go. That's so important. (laughs) The only real way out of our current environmental situation is for the wealthiest nations to stop producing, consuming so much and reorient the economy, politics <laughs> and social life around policies that are actually good for people and non and non people, non humans, the environment <laughs> alike. Right. Reorient all of our entire lives to be around uh, to, to be based around, like making life better and not um, making more money. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the idea of decoupling um, like as an economic idea and as an environmental factor and why it's an insufficient idea for dealing with the whole idea of climate change. You just can't do it is the, the whole idea here. Um, and then we'll also talk about why eco-socialist degrowth gives us a more usable and realistic look at like what living through climate change might actually look like um, and why we want this as uh, Christian people, people of faith. Dean, is that okay? Does that all sound good? What do you What do you think about this whole thing? I just uh, said? It all. I mean, it all sounds bad, but we said about it sounded good. Um, I feel like maybe also this is probably the time to do the thing we probably should have done <laughs> at the beginning of the episode or in some other place to say that uh, Matt and I got a, a book deal. We're writing a book, a Magnificast book, and it is about St. Francis and degrowth. And so we're up to our eyeballs in this material now. And I guess that means you, dear listener, are up to your ear holes in the material as well um so i think it's uh it's good to talk through good to learn about it and hot take yeah i agree i don't think that you, you can uh, decouple um, economic growth from uh, a green economy and there's all kinds of uh i don't know sort of like bad faith objections to that i think and maybe it'll be helpful to parse some of those out we've talked about them a number of times in other degrowth episodes but you do get this sort of flat rhetoric, even from left opponents of degrowth, that amounts to something like, oh, well, this is just an austerity kind of vision. If you're not growing, then it must be, you know, not fun <laughs> to live in society or something like that. Or like we don't we can't enjoy a certain consumer lifestyle, et cetera. And maybe that's true to a certain extent. We can't enjoy a consumer lifestyle in the same way. 
but it's not a, an austerity politics and um, it does mean growing other kinds of things besides economic growth. But uh, I think to only to think about value in the, in those other ways, to think about other things we'd like to grow, like access to healthcare or education or whatever, we have to definitely degrow or de- decouple uh, the idea of growth from um, from uh, ecology. So I'm here for it, Matt. Um, I'm I'm vibing. I'm enjoying it. I can't wait to learn from you what this means. <laughs> Great. You know, it's actually really good that you that you waited until like the 12 or 13 minute mark to talk about the book deal, because if you hadn't, people might skip it if you just did it at the beginning. So we're doing some like native uh, in <laughs> in product marketing that's going to really uh, get into our listeners ears. So they're not going to skip it. It's gonna be great. Um, OK, so let's talk about decoupling and like what is going on here. So there's two different sources we're going to talk through today that have something to do with decoupling. Uh, the first is a book called The Future is Degrowth, uh, which is a pretty popular book about degrowth. It's written by a handful of authors, and uh, I don't know, go look up the book, The Future is Degrowth. It's worth reading. There's also an audiobook. So if you don't want to listen to our podcast and you want to listen to an audiobook about degrowth, this is your chance. I got I have to warn you, it's a book I like, first of all. Let me say that. It's also a very dry book. So <laughs> we talked about it once uh, in the past. So you can get, well, I'm sure we spiced it up. So you can listen to that instead of the audiobook if you want. I'm, I'm sure it's a lot spicier from our perspective. In the future is degrowth, the author set up decoupling like this. A prominent thesis by advocates of green growth state that technological progress and efficiency revolution can, quote, decouple growth from environmental destruction. By switching to green sources of energy on a large scale, as well as by improving efficiency, countries could see green growth throughout the next decade and beyond, while environmental burdens decrease and emissions decline. So the idea here is that there will be technological advances that will create efficiencies in production that will allow this like massive shift in uh, production and consumption that will you know peel it away from environmental factors. Technology will become so good that you won't have to worry about emissions or <laughs> pollution or you know a, a lot of plastic or garbage islands or whatever. It sounds awesome. It sounds great. <laughs> it sounds, wouldn't it be, I mean, this is this is why it's uh, such a seductive way to think, because, like, it just tells you technology is going to be the thing that saves you. Don't worry about it too much. Elon Musk is going to figure it out. He'll put all of the CO2 in a rocket and blast it off to <laughs> Mars. It is weird, though, right, how, like, the whole conceit of the idea kind of boils down to Basically, just like, don't worry about it. <laughs> like somewhere a scientist is hard at work making uh, brilliant discoveries and I don't know, finding like more sustainable ways to make minion lunchboxes for you. <laughs> and you can just uh, rest easy knowing that'll be the case. Yeah, totally. Um, it would be nice were that the case. I mean, I don't want to give scientists <laughs> a bad name. I don't there's no I have no I don't need to defend scientists. But I mean, like, it is true that uh, new types of technology can have big impacts on the ways that we generate energy and so on. That's all true. That's absolutely the case. Um, And that's fine. Um, But the idea here is that like technological advances will create efficiencies in production that will allow that, that will just like allow things to to be okay, that we don't have to worry about it anymore. Like, I I guess the the problem with that way of thinking is that like, it is like messianic and maybe the worst way. (laughs) Um, because it just hasn't really ever happened historically. There are some cases where that decoupling has happened um, historically, but it's never to the scale that would be necessary for it to actually save the world in a meaningful way. Um, 
but the authors go on to kind of talk through this problem about production and efficiency in this really fascinating way. Productivity increases were, in effect, largely caused by the use of appropriation of cheap labor in nature, by the increasing use of fossil fuels, and by the ecological plundering of the shifting of costs to the future and to the countries of the global south. And I think this is an important piece of the puzzle here, too, because um, the efficiencies that we see in technologies um, around energy production, like, you know, like, like the productions of, of new batteries that can hold more you know, energy than before, that's cool, but it's an efficiency that is bought and sold on the backs of people mining in, in South America, just like you said a minute ago, Dean, or in Africa. Um, so there's this piece here, too, where that I think is really important, that even when there are these shifts in efficiency um, and, you know, there's a big, cool technological thing, it's never free from the context of a very exploitative capitalism. It all still exists together in that big um, that big tension. Yeah, you know, it makes me think of, uh, at, uh, at my job, we were talking last year about this situation in Honduras. I've probably told the story in the podcast before, but it's one that I think about a lot now where this community in Chalateca, Honduras, um, was displaced because the government of Honduras was given a bunch of money for, um, like, green energy, like solar panels specifically, like international grant money or whatever. And on the one hand, like, people are like, that is great. It's so good that they can have this green energy source and it would generate a bunch of money that also, like, they could uh, export that energy to nearby countries in a green way, etc. But the, you know, whose land is going to be used for solar panels, like, it turned out to be these uh, farmers who are already on it, uh, living there. <laughs> and, you know, those are the people who get displaced in the name of, like, progress and green energy and something that those farmers had said is you know we're not against green energy we're just against uh people just unfairly taking our land and like kicking us off of it and not caring about us after that you know so um i think that's important too that when people talk about the green energy revolution uh it's not only like supply chains and product uh kind of storylines or whatever that uh that have all kinds of violence baked into them you know like getting minerals in the congo or whatever it's also the very ideology of it, like it will always still continue to target the poor first. Like those are the people that have to make real adjustments with costs um, so that everybody else can like feel better about it, I guess. And I think that is also a, a huge sort of missing piece, especially in the liberal story about kind of a green energy messianism. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's the poor who will always be affected because like those are the people who have no you know, no means of like uh, arraignment. They can't like fight back. They don't have as loud of a voice as anyone else does. So they will get squashed and displaced and um, it sucks, but that's what capitalism is going to do to you because <laughs> it fundamentally doesn't want anything to change because it doesn't really care about people. Um, okay. So there's all of that. And then there's another kind of interesting trend about, um, about technology is like the, the savior <laughs> of the, the poor ecological situation that we're in. Um, and uh, the, in the future is degrowth. They make an observation that I think you see a lot in um, degrowth places. <laughs> I think this is definitely not the first time I've saw it. I actually, I even came across this idea in uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry of the Future, which is very interesting. But it's this observation about um, uh, uh, this particular paradox that this guy named William Stanley Jevons comes up with, uh, who was an economist in England in 1865. Um, Jevons was like, uh, I don't know, a very sort of like 
logical, rational, <laughs> kind of like political economy guy. Not a communist, not a Marxist, nothing like that, but just like a, a just a regular political economy kind of guy, um, which means like full of problems and <laughs> complicated ideas. But anyways, uh, Jevons is really well known for writing this like uh, bigger study on the problem of coal. And, like, uh, what does it mean to, um, I mean, you know, obviously this makes sense because of England and the Industrial Revolution, but um, it, about what more efficiency means in, in the coal industry. Uh, so in the Futures Degrowth book, they write this. Increasing the efficiency of energy and material use often leads to more and not less consumption of this energy or raw material. Um, so that particular paradox, I think, is actually the base of a lot of the green growth kind of assumptions. The problem comes out... Um, that like more efficient energy usage doesn't mean less energy used, <laughs> I guess is, is kind of the moral of the story, right? right? Like if you have a car that burns cleaner, like that, that burns gasoline more efficiently, right? It uses gas more efficient. Uh, everyone's car is, you know, becoming more fuel efficient as they develop new spark plug technology. I have no idea, right? <laughs> I have no idea, but cars become more fuel, have become more fuel efficient over time. But be, that does not mean that cars use less gas. It means that because they are more fuel efficient, people drive more. And actually, the demand for gasoline goes up. The demand for energy goes up as it becomes more efficient. So that's really important because it means that technology that's like based on the usage of a finite material like gas or coal or whatever fundamentally cannot decouple from environmental factors because more efficiency means more use and more use means like, you know, more, uh, more drilling, uh, more fracking and so on at the base. It's, you know, a, a paradox. You can't kind of get away from it. Yeah, that is super interesting. And I mean, it makes sense too, right? If you have a energy source or some other resource that happens to be scarce or limited, uh, even in a capitalist society, there's all kinds of things that kick in to sort of mark that limit, whether it's cost or, I don't know, uh, uh, output and so on. Um, so I guess it would make sense, too, that if you're uh, increasing that efficiency, all those other kinds of limits are slowly going to uh, be, I don't know, moved around or expanded or something. And people know how to live within certain limits. So why... Uh, why not just let them, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, sometimes I feel that way. Like I enjoy my life in a very big city in Toronto, Canada, and I consume a lot more electricity in my very small apartment than somebody in whatever Cuba or, you know, whatever, a handful of uh, other countries around the world. But at the same time, I feel like, I don't know, I could probably just like not have the light on. That would be fine. Totally. <laughs> we could, we could figure out how to live with them in different limits without like, you know, a lot of fuss, probably. <laughs> In the Future is Degrowth book, uh, they have this to kind of comment on that particular paradox. They say, more efficient combustion engines do not lead to lower energy use or CO2 emissions when cars become heavier, people drive more, and the money saved on fuel is spent on other CO2 intensive consumption. These are called, like, rebound effects. Rebound effects are extremely diverse, um, affect different levels in households and companies and economies and sometimes reinforce one another. So it's not just that like this particular paradox exists only in cars, but it also exists in like all these other kind of capacities too. And, uh, you know, they play, they play into one another, um, in, in different ways. So I guess all of that to say, like, 
I guess this is like this distinction about the use of energy and efficiency is really important because it does kind of put to bed a lot of big ideas about how technology might swoop in to save the day. Um, but it's not right. As long as you're using um, a finite energy source, fossil fuels and so on, it, this is going to keep kind of cropping up over and over again, especially when your entire economy is based around, you know, one particular type mm. of fossil. That's one weird thing about capitalism in general, I guess, that it is a very complicated economic system. And if nobody is driving the ship, things just sort of happen and they cause other chain reactions of other things to happen down the line. Climate change is you know, maybe like a massive uh, result of that process. Uh, just a bunch of people doing a bunch of stuff without thinking twice about it. Um, but there's all kinds of uh, stories of, you know, capitalist uh, schemes like raising prices in this sector or whatever. And it kicks off all these weird kind of supply and demand problems, or there'll be like shortages of, uh, I don't know, like uh, a food, like an avocado or quinoa, because it's like a TikTok fad or something that nobody thought about, you know? So like, it would make sense to you that if you start sort of making pretty dramatic shifts in one part of the economy uh, based on energy, let's say, you're probably also going to have a ton of other knock-on effects. And because there's no central planning agency in a capitalist economy, really, uh, I can only imagine that also creates a ton of other weird stuff that, that we probably don't <laughs> don't have a way of knowing about right now. Totally, that's right. I mean, capitalism is fundamentally like a rudderless system and like it wants it wants to continue to be rudderless. <laughs> like that's the whole idea. Um, the, the orca came and like chomped the rudder off of capitalism and that's the way people want it. They want they want this uh, big <laughs> invisible hand to just make all the decisions for them. And uh, as it turns out, the decisions aren't very good. Um, what a bummer. I'm trying to make the case that decoupling is not possible. <laughs> it's like a weird fantasy that uh, advocates of green growth have. And I I think I'm doing a pretty good job so far. But um, <laughs> here's the thing, that not all decoupling is made up. Sometimes there is decoupling, but I'm going to tell you some fun things about it. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad and tricky. In the future's degrowth, they kind of make this interesting caveat about um, relative and absolute decoupling. These are two different types. So they write this. There are some signs of global relative decoupling and of some regional absolute decoupling. For example, the global energy intensity, the amount of energy per unit of global GDP today, is almost 25% that of 1980. And the carbon intensity of the global economy, the amount of CO2 per unit of global GDP, has also declined by almost 1% uh, per year in recent decades. So, okay, in, in some sense, there's this big, there is this big decoupling. There's uh, the energy use is different. However, while the carbon intensity of the global economy continues to decrease, CO2 emissions have also continued to rise by more than 60% since 1990. What is needed is not a relative decoupling, but absolute decoupling, in which resource consumption, environmental damages, and emissions decrease in absolute terms and sufficiently fast while the economy grows. So there's this like, you know, this this type of decoupling in which um, the carbon intensity is going down. However, the CO2 emissions are still like continuing to rise. Right. So there's like this interesting, um, you know, there's there's like some decoupling, but not completely in the way that you would need to. Um, so part, part of the theory of decoupling is that, you know, technology swoops in to save the day. Um, but part of the rebuttal is that, you know, it could happen in these like small not sometimes not small, sometimes like, you know, bigger ways, right? And these, even on a global scale, but it wouldn't ever happen in all the right ways to the scale that you would need to actually like change 
the course of climate catastrophe, to change the course of like uh, the way that uh, the, the world is actually heating up, right? So like maybe it happens in some ways and that's interesting, but it's not enough to say like, ha, there's proof, this is working. It's like this, uh, this, bigger, this bigger pattern that, that they're trying to look for. But I guess like what's really interesting too is that some of this decoupling is extremely localized and the way that it's localized, I think it ends up being very telling about how the global system of capitalism works. So I'm going to read a little bit more here and we can talk about it and uh, figure out, you know, what's happening. So they continue and say, while some temporary localized absolute decoupling has taken place, that is like, you know, the real the real type of decoupling where um, production peels away from um, environmental boundaries, environmental problems. There are places where localized absolute decoupling has taken place, in particular in some global north countries with low growth rates. There's no evidence to show that it has or can occur at the scale needed to become permanent and global, nor to do so fast enough. For example, between 1980 and 2008, countries such as Canada, Germany, Italy, and Japan decoupled their domestic material use from the economic growth, and the G8 as a whole have their domestic material consumption. Yet, when measured in absolute terms, vetted resources and trade, material footprints closely track GDP in all wealthy nations. And despite dips in GDP rates, continues to grow at an unsustainable rate. Furthermore, only 14 countries have absolutely decoupled GDP growth from both production and consumption based on CO2 emissions. And this was aided by slow economic growth and for several was only temporary. It's important, right? So there are these like handful of countries that have been able to do this kind of like decoupling, but it's like way slow. It's super slow. Couldn't, you, you couldn't, you can't save the, uh, you can't save the world with these slow decoupling rates is kind of the point here. Um, the other piece though, is that um, there is like some pretty um, stark differences between the decoupling transformations of a global North economy like Canada and a, you know, quote unquote developing country, you know, like Guatemala or Honduras or, you know, whatever, right? There are pretty different. And the reasons why the decoupling happens are, you know, based in particular types of imperialist relationships that you have to like kind of take into the equation, right? Canada, Germany, Italy, Japan, and so on, they they can decouple because they will shift a lot of those um, <laughs> those heavy types of production elsewhere in the world. So there's a, a sense of equity that's missing from the conversation. And uh, at, at the end of this, uh, this section on decoupling and the future's degrowth, they say this, to put the case directly, the transformations of global north economy necessary to achieve annual emissions reductions of around 10% as is necessary to avert climate emergency can only be achieved without economic growth and will most likely result in a reduction of GDP, right? So there's like, the sense in which these um, these economies have to slow way down in ways that like so so that this can all happen, but like it, other other countries other economies don't have this particular type of luxury because of the capitalist system that they live within, and I don't know it's just like it's frustrating to hold up a handful of like global north countries as being like the bastions of of decoupling and ecological thought when it's only possible in those countries because of you know. Uh, global capitalism and imperialism. So I guess, I mean, the idea is that the global North countries have already kind of run up their debts and now they're able to um, decouple from a position of economic strength or confidence or something like yeah. that, as opposed to in the global South, like you, you know, they never got to a point where they can even make that conscious choice or something. Is that sort of the idea? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it for sure, right? Like they have, they've run up their debts and now they can like kind of coast a bit. But it's also like they've run up their debts, you know, 
Um, and then they've taken those like debts and outsourced them elsewhere, right? Like, like part of the reason that right. those countries um, have lower emissions is because they've outsourced all of their production into other countries, <laughs> right? So it's like, of course, mm-hmm. they can do it because um, they have a particular place in the global economy that lets them just like push it all off onto other countries. Right. So we buy the minions backpacks, but we don't want to make the minions backpacks. Yeah, I mean, exactly. There was like a there are conversations, too, about like, um, well, you know, like everything is made in China. Right. People are always complaining about that. But like um, as China has like grown economically too, like some of that production is, is shifting elsewhere in the world, too, as, as like uh, as as China, too, has like cashes in on those debts or like has, you know, has gone undergone this like considerable type of economic transformation already that they get even pushed off onto other countries yet. But it's a system of, like, passing the buck to other countries that are um, not as strong in the global capitalist system and then, like, getting mad at them when they when they do the production that the Global North is asking them. I think that's bad. I don't think, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's good, that's for sure. It's frustrating. It's just it's just frustrating to, um, I don't know, whatever. You see these handful, these handful of examples that, of countries that have that have done decoupling just right. But, um, <laughs> you know, not really. It's it's an illusion. It's all fake. Yeah, I guess I'm also kind of confused because being a person living in Canada, um, I don't really know what our decoupling rate or whatever it might be, but Canada is like basically a giant oil company um, that also elects a parliament every once in a while. Like, I don't know, we can't slay to sell it to somebody else who will buy it and you know we're like running over indigenous land to try to do it a lot of uh the industry that is outside of oil is also unsustainable in canada so i don't know feels like if canada was a kind of model country for decoupling it would be a pretty bad look for uh environmental balancing with your gdp okay well let's keep pushing on here and talking about a few more of the like uh the the weird hang-ups i think that exist with decoupling um, so, so far, everything I've talked about has been from the book, uh, The Future is Degrowth, and it's cool. Um, there's another, I mean, there's a lot of people that kind of, like, are in this orbit of, like, weird political economy stuff and and degrowth and ecological thinking. Um, one of them is this guy named Timothy Parikh. Um, he's French, so I'm sure his name is not Timothy. I'm sure it's something more French. I'm just not going to try, though. Um uh, he is a French economist who uh, wrote what's probably like the the best and at least um, one of the more accessible, I think, uh, rebuttals to the idea of decoupling. He wrote it in 2019 for the EU, and uh, he's a good follow on Twitter because he's constantly a thorn in the side of people who are arguing for green growth, and it's really fun to see. Um, so in Parikh's study, he has like seven main objections to the idea that economic growth can be decoupled from environmental factors. We've already talked about a bunch of them, um, so I'll probably maybe just like gloss over the ones that we've talked about already. Um, but uh, there's a few other ideas that are, are worth considering uh, in this whole degrowth conversation. He has seven objections to the idea of decoupling, and uh, I'll just read them, and we can kind of talk about them as we go. So the first objection is that the, there are rising energy expenditures. When extracting a resource, cheaper options are generally used first. The extraction of remaining stocks then becoming a more resource and energy intensive process, resulting in an increase in total environmental degradation per unit of resource extracted. What's important about this is that, like, you're not going to just kind of go into any given situation with, like, the most, like, clean energy that, like, uh, because 
um, I mean, because these are market economies, right? Because this is a capitalist economy, what's going to like get used first is what's most readily available and like what's cheapest to use. And in a world that's built around fossil fuels, you know, um, like green energy is not going to be the first thing that people like, <laughs> you know, line up to use. It's going to be oil. It's going to be natural gas. It's going to be gasoline and all kinds of stuff like that, right? Part of it is just that, like, decoupling is a problem because it does rely on, like I said a minute ago, like a rudderless market-based um, approach. It just is, like, assuming that people are going to do something good <laughs> when when doing something bad is cheaper and easier. Right. I think that makes sense. And uh, it reminds me, too, of the kind of things that Pope Francis has been saying in Fertility and La to Sea, where... He talks about how, you know, market-based solutions are, uh, I don't know, they're, they're just not sufficient to deal with the ecological crisis because they don't think in terms of the ecology first, right? They think in terms of balancing um, profit and uh, the profit motive and all that kind of thing. So you don't even have to be a Marxist, I think, to intuit that there's something about that that you're going to seek. You know, it'd be great if, like, every every person trying to extract a resource was like a good-hearted person but chances are if you're like a person with a really strong conscience for the environment uh resource extraction is probably not your job of choice so uh it makes sense to think that it's a you know the profit <laughs> motive is always going to outstrip your whatever your conscience might say yeah i think that's right uh, the second thing that Parikh says is about rebound effects. That's like the the paradox that we talked about earlier about efficiency. Um, so that's the second one. We've talked about that kind of already, so I'll, I'll keep going. The third one is actually really fascinating, and he calls it problem shifting. He says that technological solutions to one environmental problem can create new ones and or exacerbate others. For example, the production of private electric vehicles puts pressure on lithium, copper, and cobalt resources. I love this one because... This is the Paul Verlio point. The invention of the ship is the invention of the shipwreck. And uh, he's right. Um, there's a lot of examples to go through with this one. But I think that one is one that's actually really fascinating. There are all types of like new new types of technology, new types of like ways of generating green energy that is, um, you know, better than burning gasoline. And like sometimes they are extremely utopian in their scope and like <laughs> and in practice would be really impossible so, for example, there's one green energy solution that I think people really like to talk about, um, and I've seen it in a handful of different types of literature. Uh, it is a pretty wordy thing. It's called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, but the acronym is called BEX, and that's usually what people say, um, BEX, um, a great acronym. So the idea with these particular types of, like, energy generating places, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like a weird green power plant, the idea is that, like, um, you would grow a type of plant that is good at sequestering carbon dioxide from the air, and then you use that for energy. So, like, you grow a, you grow a big forest. You grow some types these types of plants. There's a handful of them um, that are good at sucking up carbon dioxide, and they grow really fast. Um, and then you burn those to create heat that boils water, that turns the turbine, <laughs> that makes electricity. Um, and then all of the um, the smoke from that. Uh, whole procedure, right? You think it, it might just go out a big smokestack, but no. Instead, it gets pushed underground into like a big, like uh, geological storing, a big cave is what I'm trying to say. It gets pushed into a hole in the ground, <laughs> and then and and then it just chills out there, right? And that's like and that's what it does. 
Um, instead of putting it into the air, you put it into like storage and it's like uh, it's there for basically all time until it, I don't know, fossilizes or whatever happens to like a bunch of smoke underground. I couldn't tell you. But the problem here is that like this is like an interesting idea and like there's um, there's like examples of like exactly how this would work and like maybe there's something to it. But the problem is that it requires a ton of like biofuel, right? It, 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 it requires a bunch of like biological matter to burn literally and that would require massive amounts of land right dispossessing more people plants and animals so like you know this might be like a cool technological solution that really um creates a whole lot of clean energy and it doesn't put a bunch of stuff out in the environment and it uses biofuel and isn't that great and it's not a nuclear power plant and people love that at the same time you create this whole other problem where like you know the entire land area of your country has to be like devoted to growing this particular type of plant <laughs> and like uh and and then people can't live there anymore um okay so an interesting example there's a really great section about bex in uh this book called half earth socialism that if you haven't read maybe go check it out it's fun um okay so preet goes on though and he says that there's all these other problems too he has another one that's titled the underestimated impact of services and this is another interesting, like, um, difference between global economies. He says that the service economy can only exist on top of the material economy, right. not instead of it. Services have a significant footprint that often adds to rather than substitutes that of goods. And this is an important point because, um, like, the economies of a lot of those countries I mentioned earlier that have been able to decouple, like, you know, countries in Western Europe and Canada – um, and so on, right? They have they've, they've shifted away from the material economy of production. Like you know, people aren't building whatever the minions backpacks. You know, people in in those economies are they're they're more service oriented jobs, and because of that, like the all of the pollution from the produ- <laughs> from the production of minions backpacks doesn't happen there. So there's like a way that there's like this appearance of decoupling, but. You know, even though service economies, they look they look good on this like one level about emissions and like maybe it looks like you're decoupling. But really what you're doing is shoving all of that production out, out out elsewhere. So you're trying to sell the minions backpacks, but you're not the one making them. Somebody else is making them. And, you know, the other country that's making them, um, they're getting harangued by the rest of the international community for having such high emissions rates. Um but like they're they're literally they're literally doing the bidding of like all these like service industry you know, countries that want all these cheap goods produced. Some other pieces that he has here that are interesting, but like, um, I don't know, we don't need to talk about at length, is that there's actually, that um, to decouple, there has to be this like particular emphasis on recycling and a certain level of recycling. But uh, Parikh says that the recycling rates that we have now are like, you know, pretty low and that um, recycling in general requires a lot of energy to even like, you know, to even do. I watched a lot of Captain Planet when I was growing up and I thought recycling was it, but I'm now learning that it's not <laughs> pretty problematic. Okay. Um, the other piece is that insufficient and inappropriate technological change. So Preek writes that technological progress is not targeting the factors of production that matter for ecological sustainability and not leading to the type of innovations that, that reduce environmental pressures. It's not disruptive enough as it falls to displace other undesirable technologies, and it's not itself fast enough to enable sufficient decoupling. Um, this is actually a very funny thing. There's more about this in the actual study that you can go check out if you would like to take more time to do it. But it's great. You know, you think that technology is going to save you, and there's all kinds of innovations, but not in the places that matter. I love that. And then finally, the last thing he mentions is cost shifting. Um, he says, uh, this is what has been observed and termed as decoupling in some local cases. 
uh, was only generally in apparent decoupling, resulting mostly from an externalization of environmental impacts from high consumption to low consumption countries enabled by international trade. This is the same point I keep harping on um, in different ways, in different capacities, but it's like, you know, um, one country <laughs> is uh, consuming all the stuff and another country is producing all the stuff. And uh, that uh, creates an uneven, um, an uneven type of like uh, emissions production but it also like passes the buck on who's really responsible for it. So each of these um, seven things, right? There's there's a lot going on in each of them. There's probably you know you could talk about them more in depth. Um, but even if each of these seven problems were somehow resolved, there would still be the question of like scale and time frame behind decoupling and like um, and, and implementing technology. And I guess the point here is that like all of these things are annoying and good rebuttals of like the idea that you can divorce production from ecological limits but like even if even if these all, all these things were you know figured out there's just not enough time to like wait on the market to distribute technologies evenly across the globe so that you could actually <laughs> take care of these situations like even if elon musk did make the big the big clean energy machine tomorrow or whatever it would it would kind of like not really matter because then he would sell it to all the richest com- countries and then like none of these other countries would ever get it because that's the way capitalist works um, so I guess all I'd say, um, my point here is that <laughs> you can't divorce production from environmental boundaries because we fundamentally live in a finite, a finite world. Um, and you know, you got to learn how to live within those limits and not try to like get out of them. That is, uh, tr- trying to transcend the limits and boundaries of the world is a like really futile thing. And I think we'll always just kind of end up in weird techno utopian <laughs> fantasies. Yeah, I mean, as usual, I guess the problem is capitalism. And if you can't name that as the problem, you're just going to keep creating the problem or moving around or something. Um, I think, you know, it's it's tough to parse these out sometimes because the argument, for example, that it's not um, it wouldn't happen fast enough is a fair argument to make. It's also an argument you can make against, like, being a communist or something, (laughs) you know, like um, the left is not moving fast enough either. I mean, the problem is nobody's moving fast enough. But I think the one thing that the left has going for it that uh, the decoupling folks don't is that at least there's a kind of basic um, underlying understanding of like why the economy itself drives some of these problems rather than being like we just have to kind of tinker around with uh, some of the edges of it and then eventually it will, I don't know, overnight kind of figure itself out or or regulate itself uh, without anybody really thinking too hard about it. Um, I feel like all you have to do is have like lived through uh, the COVID pandemic to like feel like people just will not act in their own self-interest. And at a certain point, like we have to maybe not expect that from them. <laughs> like, you know, there's got to be some other way of making decisions than uh, if you have money, you get to do something. And if you don't, you don't get to do it. Um, or like you, you know, you make choices by wanting to maximize your money and save money and make more money rather than having other kinds of values. So I don't know. I, I mean, I'm convinced decoupling, it's not right, it's not real, it's not true. Um, but uh, I think it's like, it's important to sort of just hammer home that it's it's capitalism. That's the, the big problem. If you can't name that as the problem, you're just always going to create another, some kind of exploitation of uh, people in the environment. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Capitalism is, is the problem with each of these. But also, I mean, I think there are, there are other ways too that like certain types of socialism don't, don't really make sense either. I mean, there there's yeah. this like this emphasis that like 
you know, you can't really just tinker your way out of it, I guess is the point, right? You can't just, like, shift things around until somehow, like, the uh, GDP grows and, like, carbon emissions stop or something, right? Like, there's no amount of tinkering that's going to do that. Like, any any type of political economy that focuses on, like, ramping up production in this, like, really big way is going to kind of get you in the same spot. And only a type of the only thing that's going to get you out is a type of political philosophy or a type of, you know, political economy that is going to tell you, like, I don't know, you just have to live a different way. You have to live within the particular boundaries of the planet that we live on. And, and that's kind of the end of the story. I, I mean, um, it's easier than said, said than done. And there's like a lot of planning that would have to go into that particular type of economy. And good. That's like a worthwhile thing to do. But um, yeah. Anything, anything that's telling you you can produce your way out of it is just is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think too, it's just a, also a, a general lack of understanding of how people are affected. You know, not just the environment, but the political economy piece. That it's the poor who bear the brunt of the cost. Like yeah. in the Honduras example, you know, it reminds me of uh, another thing from Pope Francis in La Dot to See. Um, hang on, I'm actually going to pull it up. I have it right here. Um, Pope Francis says uh, it needs to be said that generally speaking, there's little in the way of clear awareness of problems, which especially affect the excluded. Yet they are the majority of the planet's population, billions of people. These days they're mentioned in international political and economic discussions, but one has the impression that their problems are brought up as an afterthought, a question which gets added almost out of duty or in a tangential way, if not merely as collateral damage. Indeed, when all said and done, they frequently remain at the bottom of the pile. This is due partly to the fact that many professionals, opinion makers, communications media, and centers of power being located in affluent urban areas are far removed from the poor with little direct contact with their problems. They live and reason from the comfortable position of a high level of development and a quality of life well beyond the reach of the majority of the world's population. Uh, This lack of physical contact and encounter, encouraged at times by the disintegration of our cities, can lead to a numbing of conscience and to tendentious analyses which neglect parts of reality. At times, this attitude exists side by side with a green rhetoric. Uh, Today, we have to realize that a true ecological approach always becomes a social approach. And this is where uh, our boy comes in. It has to integrate questions of justice and debates on the environment so as to hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. A nod to Leonardo Boff. Um, a long quote, but I think uh, Pope Francis is right. You know, the you only get ideas like, oh, we could just kind of conveniently decouple growth and uh, uh, ecological responsibility or whatever, um, whatever decoupling, however you summarize it. Uh, we can just do decoupling. You only get that idea if you're already reasoning from a place where you don't really have to worry about the effects of those kinds of decisions or you're not really in touch with who ends up on the wrong side of them or who kind of you know, pays the the price for all the other uh, consequences of it, like, you know, dragging uh, cobalt out of the Congo and uh, creating a ton of conflict there, etc. So I think it's that's the key. Um, Pope Francis has got it right. There's uh, the ecological approach is also always a social approach. And if you can't square those two things, um, I don't know, you're just going to literally sacrifice the poor so that you can keep having minions, backpacks. And I think that's bad. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's exactly right. Um, and Pope Francis, I mean, obviously, 
he's on the right track uh, with the Cry of the Poor, Cry of the Earth piece. And I think that's actually really important, though, too, because in a lot of liberal ways of thinking, of, like, sometimes you might hear considerations for the poor, even if they are, like, you know, not very strong. But rarely do you hear more considerations for non-human creatures. And I think that's actually an important piece. I mean, it's an important piece, like, spiritually, I think, from the perspective of Francis and Leonard Boff and, and all kinds of, you know, Christian figures like that. But also, like, in a real... In a real, like, interconnected way, you have to also think about the cry of the earth and the cry of, like, non-human animals. <laughs> because our lives are also extremely dependent on the uh, a thriving and biodiverse world. Um, because without, you know, like, without bees or <laughs> whatever, you know, you're not going to have food. And, like, without a handful of other, like, plant and animal life, you're not going to have different types of medicine. Um, and when you start losing that types of that type of biodiversity and like when it's like kind of erased out of the process of consideration from, you know, the impact that humans have on the planet, um, you get trapped in weird downward spirals that you can't really pull out of. And you have big extinction events uh, where, <laughs> you know, the uh, the capitalists are going to feel the pain um for sure, but like it's going to wipe out a lot of other people too. So all that to say, it's all really interconnected here. And uh, imagining that you can just buy electric cars and get out of the whole situation is uh, woefully inadequate. And uh, you should think about things in a bigger scope. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying, Matt, is um, the Orca Liberation Front is at the the forefront of uh, the struggle here against um, green growth, against uh, bad growth, against capitalist growth, etc. And uh, we've got to, as always, not only save the whales, but be saved by the whales. I mean, okay, it's it's like half joke and half true, but like, yes, be, j- because like the same the same things that are like uh, <laughs> that are driving the orcas to revenge are the same things that are like you know. Uh, oppressing people in the Congo, the same the same economic forces, right? They're all kind of driving the uh, the exploitation, whether it's humans or animals. It's all uh, it's all capitalism all the way down. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's a fad not just among the orcas. You got how to blow up a pipeline, how to eat a boat, um, it's how to a, eat a boat. A big I would watch that movie. <laughs> Me too. It's like a, a literal free willy kind of movie. An Ocean's Eleven style movie about a group of whales who want to eat the boat. <laughs> Uh, truly an Ocean's Eleven for sure. Danny Ocean, <laughs> a real life wet guy. <laughs> oh my God, that would be great. D- oh my, I'm, I'm, uh, I need to get this. I need to get this movie made. But there's not gonna be any merchandise. Okay, there, there, yeah, there used to be. You know, in the '90s, there was this show called Street Sharks. Oh yeah, and I feel like now we need to do Captain Planet, but also their their whales, and maybe we can kind of combine these. Um, yeah, I agree. There shouldn't be toys, but I do kind of want maybe just one toy. Maybe there could just be one toy and it's made out of, um, I don't know, like a, a piece of a tree that's really good at like sequestering carbon. And that can be my great whale figure with huge muscles and uh, I don't know, cut off shorts or something. Can I have like at least that one toy? Yeah, I think that's probably fine. But here's something I really need to tell you that you're going to love. While you were speaking, I was definitely listening, first of all. So don't get don't get it twisted, but I did really I, I, re, I did really quickly go to the streetsharks.fandom.com 
and searched the word orca because I was I vaguely remember there being an orca character. Right. And there is. Right. And Dean, I will give you a hundred dollars. I will I will PayPal you a hundred dollars right now if you can imagine his name. If you can guess what this orca's name is. Oh my gosh. There's so much writing on this. Um I can't believe we're recording. Okay. His it's an orca whale. Yep. And and it's like a street shark name. His name isn't like Rob or something. <laughs> it's a street shark name. Yeah, okay. His name is not Rob. Um <laughs> Uh, okay, his name, oh, man, I'm trying to think, um, I, can his name just be Killer Whale? I don't know. I mean, that it's a good guess, given the, the show Street Sharks, but I'm sorry, his name is actually Moby Lick. Moby Lick, incredible, amazing, love it, uh, I love that big tongue on that orca whale, a trait that they are definitely known for, whenever <laughs> anyone thinks of orca whales, that is the one thing they remember. Oh my god, yeah, um, for sure, you know, there's another character in the show that I'm just now seeing who's a squid, and their name is Kilimari, I, I love the show, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that it's too bad that it doesn't exist anymore. Um, people who are listening to this who are who were born like uh, after 1995 will definitely not understand this reference whatsoever, and I apologize. <laughs> um, there's a few whale characters yeah. I'm now learning. Uh, there's another one. Oh wait, no, there's a shark that's called Slamu, which I think would be better if he was. Uh, oh, but he's a whale shark. Okay, I get it. Right. Right. Sure. All right, folks. That feels like we have cheating to, a little bit. Yeah, it does. We have to end the podcast before this just devolves into me reading the Street Sharks wiki over and over again. Um, <laughs> it's so important that we stop here, though. Yeah, I agree. It's a good reward, though, for having made it through a handful of uh, big quotes about decoupling. Um, but uh, it does also feel kind of strange to end an episode where we started talking about orcas destroying uh, boats because of climate change to end on <laughs> uh, talking about a TV show that I did only watch because I did buy a toy at a KB Toys once. But I think it's <laughs> fine i think it's fine it'll be okay um moby lick he's coming for you boats thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash the magnificast if you subscribe at i don't know even like one or two dollars you get an invite to our great discord community and you also get access to a monthly ish behind the paywall podcast called the lock-in where we do goofy more goofy stuff more goofy content than this if you can imagine Um, Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.